Welcome to Grace. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad that you're with us this morning because today we are continuing our series that we're calling Bless, where we are talking about ways that we can bless our neighbors and see God not just change the world around us, but change the world through us. If you haven't If you haven't been here for this series so far, you can catch up on those messages just so you don't feel left behind. You can catch up on those on our website or on YouTube or our podcast. Before this morning, um, just so you don't feel left out at all or left behind at all, we've been looking at how to live out the mission of grace, how to live out the mission of of God here in this world by looking at this word bless and using the five letters as an acronym for five habits of living this missional life, this, this way for us to uh, bring people to Jesus. So we're looking at five habits of how to point people to God. So two weeks ago, we talked about beginning with prayer. We talked about specifically praying for God to reveal to us um, what, or who he wants us to pursue, right? And then last week, we, we talked about listening and engaging, listening to God and engaging with what he tells us to do, and then listening to the people around us and engaging with what we hear from them. And then today, we're going to talk about possibly the easiest of all of these habits, which is eating, Eating, it's, it's a, a habit that we all have already. We just maybe need to learn to shift it more intentionally. Um, as we begin, would you go with me in prayer for this, this morning? God, I thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for what you do for us. I pray that you would speak, speak to us this morning over these next few minutes about how to bring people, point people to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So one of the things that I've noticed when people talk about their their favorite foods is that often it has actually very little to do with the food itself. Let me, let me explain. So what, what happens typically is when we describe what is our favorite meal or one of our favorite places to eat, what we really are, are talking about is the nostalgia that goes along with the food. Have you ever been to a, a restaurant and you, you went with some friends or family and, and you were there and it was just this absolutely amazing experience? The food was so good and then you go back later and you try it and it wasn't as good? Have you had that? Yes, you've had that. Because what happens is not our taste buds don't necessarily change that much. What happens is we are remembering more than the food the experience, we're remembering the conversation, we're, we're remembering the, the, the time that we had in that moment. We, Kirsten and I, were talking with some of our friends 
uh, from Michigan, and they were talking about a time where we were in, uh, we were, went to this restaurant, and they were like, that was the best meal of our lives. And honestly, if we were to go back to that place, it would probably be only okay. It was the moment. It was the, the people we were with. It was the, the conversation we were having. It was the experience more than it was the actual food. See, the people with whom we share a meal actually affect the meal. I don't think they, I don't think they affect our, our taste buds, but the good memories of conversation help us remember the entire experience in a much bigger way. See, the, the people with whom we eat actually affect the meal, and that is one of the main reasons we only eat with certain people, right? You don't just eat with anybody because it gets weird. You can't enjoy your meal if it's with just anybody, right? If you have the wrong person there, it ruins the entire experience. You typically have a meal with somebody you are already in a relationship with, and you want to build that relationship, or you have a meal with somebody that you want to begin a relationship with, right? When you start to date somebody, what is one of the first dates you go on? Dinner, coffee, dessert, something that you sit across from somebody and you have access to them to have conversation, to learn about them, to share a little bit about yourself with them. Something happens at the table that helps to build this relationship, to begin this relationship. It is the, the, the table, this, this table here is, is not this magical place, but it is a, a place that all walls kind of drop and you are there and you have no choice but to engage in conversation. So at the table, we see that it is really a place of connection and relationship. In a number of studies over the years, we've seen that they have proven time and again the benefit of sitting down regularly over a meal. Specifically with families, um, eating together has proven to, uh, to be extremely beneficial. Regular, regular family meals together um, shows that they, they improve self-esteem, they improve um, eating habits as our kids become adults, they improve um, communication skills. They, they improve school performance. And then on the other side, they actually help to uh, reduce eating disorders and substance abuse and violent behaviors. It, it shows that it reduces depression and suicidal thoughts. Eating around a table together consistently actually helps us. Because, it's not the food, because the table is a place of connection and relationship. When we are with our families around the table, we as children, right, we are, we are learning that this is my people, that I am not alone, that I have these people. We become more aware of our self-worth because our parents are speaking into that. So just, just a little freebie, this has nothing to do with the sermon, just a freebie. Parents, if you're not eating at the table with your kids, you should start. That had nothing to do with this, but you should do it. 
The story we, we read a few moments ago was a story about Jesus at a meal. Jesus at a, a meal with this guy named Levi. So we know Levi here as, as Matthew. We know him as one of the 12 uh, apostles that Jesus took in and walked with and brought along and then sent out to, to start his, uh, his church. We, we know him as, as Matthew, the guy who wrote the, the first gospel in the New Testament. So we, we know who this is, even though we might not recognize the name Levi. This is Matthew. But anyways, this story was Jesus's first and second interaction with with Levi. He, he first off calls him to follow him, and then he goes with him to his house to enjoy uh, a meal. These, these two interactions were extremely significant for the life of, of Matthew, but also for us, because it shows us the heart of Jesus. These, this story shows us a lot about Jesus and who he, he is. See, Levi we see that he was a, a tax collector, right? It says we see in verse 27, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors were deplorable people. They were, they were Jewish people who worked for the Roman government, and their job was to collect taxes. I mean, it makes sense, right? To collect taxes from Jewish people for the Roman government, and they had a certain amount that they had to give to them, and they were allowed to demand from Jewish people whatever they wanted over that amount, and so they did. And they would cheat them and they would rob them and they, they required so much more of them than they should have to make their own living. And so they were considered at the, the lowest of the low. So right here at the beginning of this, this passage, before we ever even get to the meal, we already see that Jesus' interaction with Levi, his interaction with Matthew here is, is shocking, Jesus chose a man who was a tax collector, was the worst of the worst, to be one of his people, to be one of his 12, to be one of the people into whom he would pour his life and, and, and who he would call into his own life. He, he was one of his disciples, and that was a special, special place in the life of this Jewish culture was to be the disciple of an esteemed rabbi. And now this guy comes in and he willingly chooses the worst of the worst to follow him. So it's already shocking, right? And then he goes after that, he goes to Levi's house to have dinner, not just with him, but with a multitude or a large company of tax collectors. He went to go have a meal with the entire IRS. And people were shocked by this. What in the world is wrong with him? I'm assuming that his other disciples that were with him at this time were like, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. Maybe you, maybe, maybe you don't really know our customs that well. I thought, I thought you were Jewish. Maybe, maybe you're not. Maybe you lived, you lived away long enough that you don't, really, you don't really know our customs. We don't really hang out with those people. 
They were probably scared. They were probably, they were probably like, oh, I don't know about this. What is everybody going to say about me if I do this? But Jesus willingly chose to go and be around not just one, but a large company of tax collectors, a whole group of the worst of the worst. And for us to really get the importance of this act of Jesus, uh, to go and eat with this group of people who were tax collectors, who were sinners, let's, let's walk through a theology of food, if you will. And I know some of you are thinking that's my favorite kind of theology, but, but let's, let's walk through a theology of food, and we can only really just kind of scratch the surface because of, of time. But the very first conversation in the entire Bible between God and man revolves around two things. First, he, he goes to them and God speaks to man after he creates man in his own image. He speaks to him and he says that you have, he's given him dominion and authority and power over all of the world to of the earth to subdue it, right? To, to subdue this and bring it into subjection to him. And then in the same breath, Right after this, he says, I have given you every tree, every plant for your food. So right at the very beginning, the first conversation, God gives both a, a position and provision, and both of them revolve around food, either producing the food by working the land or giving them food from the trees. So right at the beginning, we see, we see that this is the thing, okay? Then you move on a little bit further, just a little bit further, and we'll, we'll go a lot quicker than this after this one. But a little bit further, we see, we see the very first conflict in the Bible. The very first conflict in the Bible revolves around food. Adam and Eve ate the one fruit they were not allowed to eat, and so we have the first conflict. Then we go a little bit further, right? God has chosen his people, and he gives them food laws. He gives them food laws, restrictions on what you can and cannot eat, with whom you can and cannot eat. And then we, he gives these, the, these, this whole list of, of feasts, these celebrations, these moments to remember what God has done, and almost all of them revolve around food. And then this is where we're going to really jump. Then we jump to the New Testament, right? We jump to the New Testament, and we see Jesus in his life. He was constantly eating with people, but his very last act that he did, his very last act that he did in this physical, earthly body before he was crucified was to sit down at a meal with his disciples and introduce another meal. And then after he was crucified, his resurrected body, when he came back, we see that he ate again with his disciples. And then at the very end of the Bible, the very end of the Bible, we see we see that there is a feast. We see that there is a, a, a feast. So food all throughout the, the Bible, like I said, this is just scratches the surface of, of what we could talk about in, in terms of a theology of food, but food all throughout the Bible is used in, in one big way about how to experience God. 
Throughout the Old Testament, you see, you see an abundance of food as provision and blessing of God, and you see a lack of food as the judgment of God on your, your life. In Psalm 34, we see this verse that is, that is absolutely amazing. We see this verse that says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The only way that we have a reference for what it means to taste is through food. Therefore, food itself, food itself is a type and a shadow of God. And we, we taste and we see that God is good. What limited joy we get from food, we should get in an exponential amount from God himself. What satisfaction and fulfillment we get from our food is, is just a picture of the satisfaction and fulfillment that we get in Christ. The sustenance that we get from our food is just an a reminder of the fact that God is the one who sustains us. All throughout the Bible, we see that food plays a big role. Not only what you did and did not eat was big, but with whom you did and did not eat was a really big deal because, because, Excuse me, because it was all connected to their experience of God. So, when Jesus sat at the table with tax collectors and sinners, it wasn't just a hand up at the man, it was a theological stance. This is why they grumbled among themselves and asked, why, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And it's important that we, we understand Jesus' response to this because his, his response is, is, is more than what seems on the surface. His response is, is essentially because I have what they need. I have what they need. They are the exact ones I came for. I came to call sinners to repentance, and this is how I'm doing it. See, throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus make statements about his coming, and most, most of the time, they are something uh, along the lines of his purpose. He, he made statements like, I came, or Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Other times, he says, he came to, to uh, serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, or to seek and to save the lost, or to give life in abundance. See, Jesus often spoke of purpose. In fact, he spoke of, of his coming in the, the, the terms of his purpose every time except for one time. This one time, it was about strategy. The strategy he used to fulfill his purpose was he came eating and drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. This is the, the, the strategy he used to rescue and redeem. This is what he did to bring people into himself. 
In Luke's gospel, we see a, a bunch of stories of Jesus doing just this, of sitting down and eating with people. Here in Luke 5, we see this story with all of these tax collectors. Then in Luke 7, we see that Jesus is at dinner with this Pharisee at the, the house of, of Simon the Pharisee when this lady comes in and she, uh, she, she cleans his feet with her tears and dries it with her hair and then anoints his feet with this costly perfume. And then in Luke chapter 9, we see Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And then in Luke 10, we see Jesus share a meal with Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, we see Jesus rebuke the Pharisees over a meal. And then in Luke 14, Jesus expresses the kingdom of God and what it should look like over a meal, and he does it by describing meals. And then in Luke chapter 19, Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus's house to share a meal with him. And then in Luke 22 is the introduction of, of the, the sacred meal at a meal with his disciples. And then in Luke 24, we see the resurrected Jesus eating a meal with, with two of his disciples in Emmaus. And then later in Luke 24, we see him eating with all of his disciples some fish that he was cooking as they walked by. Jesus pointed out that all of this, all of these meals, all of this was for one purpose. For one reason, this was simply the strategy I was using to bring people to myself. Eating all of these meals was simply my strategy to seek and to save the lost. You've heard the, the statement, the, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? I think Jesus would say the way to someone's soul is through their stomach. He ate with them to bring people to him. This was a, a key aspect of Jesus's evangelism strategy was eating and drinking. Tim Chester, the, the author, pointed out in his book, A Meal with Jesus, points out that Jesus was so good at eating with people as a means of evangelism that people saw it as excessive. They called him a glutton and a drunkard. He was not a glutton nor a drunkard, but he did it so much that people thought it was excessive. The two concerns that we see the religious leaders had with Jesus more often or most often was what he ate and drank, with whom he ate and drank it, right? The food the excess in his food and the excess in his grace that he offered. They were very concerned at how this man could claim to be God or even good and eat with these people at the or, or very, very least, how could he possibly forgive these people? They couldn't, they couldn't wrap their minds around the excess of his food and the excess of his grace. But Jesus' response to them is basically, this is the whole point I'm here. 
This is the whole reason that I came to this. Sharing a meal with these tax collectors is actually a beautiful picture of the gospel that the holy, righteous God is eating a meal. He is communing with the worst of the worst. That is the gospel. That God not only wants to eat with us, but he wants to share a meal with us. That is the God. He wants to be in community with us. It wasn't the meal that caused anyone to change, but the meal was simply an invitation into relationship with him. The meal was simply an invite into his life, and it was that relationship that caused change. See, Jesus' strategy was to use everyday opportunities to bring people into relationship with himself. One of the easiest ways to do that is over a meal. His strategy was so effective It was so effective and it impacted the apostles so much that in Acts chapter 2, when when the early church was started, when the church began in Acts chapter 2, they they devoted themselves or committed themselves to a few things, right? We see in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches and the church goes from hundreds to thousands and then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to prayer, to fellowship, and then to two meals, two meals, one Communion, communion, the Lord's Supper, this thing where they, they, they partook of this meal that Jesus did. And then the, the second meal was meals in community, meals around each other's tables in their homes and, and building community. And the strategy was, was so effective at reaching people and bringing people in that, that Luke wrote at the end of this that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. People were br- being brought into the kingdom of God through meals. And this strategy remained effective for, for centuries. In the fourth century, the Roman Emperor Julian was frustrated that Christians were so effective at winning over his own subjects that he wrote in anger about the Christians. This is what he said. For just as those who entice children with a cake and by throwing it to them two or three times, induce them to follow him, and then when they are far away from their friends, cast them on board a ship and sell them as slaves. By the same method, I say the Galileans, or Christians, also begin their so-called love feast, or hospitality, or service of tables, for they have many ways of carrying it out, and hence call it by many names. And the result is that they have led very many into, he calls it atheism, but it's Christianity. He was so he was so frustrated at the effectiveness of their strategy to just sit down at a table with people who are not believers and be able to bring them into the family of God. He was so frustrated at this that he actually launched a whole new initiative for his pagan priests to try to outlove the Christians. This strategy was so, so effective, but over time, 
over time, the table has shifted from being the primary focus of the gathering, the primary means of the gathering, to something more like a stage or a screen. And in doing so, our faith has become a lot less about community and a lot more individualized. We've lost hospitality as a highly effective tool for evangelism and community along the way. See, we want to follow Jesus' teachings philosophically when we ought to follow Jesus' habits practically. Instead of just intellectually concerning ourselves with what Jesus said, we should physically concern ourselves with what Jesus did. His strategy was to bring people into relationship often through a meal. And if this was his strategy and it was so effective, and and if this was the strategy of the early church and it was so effective, then it probably should continue to be our strategy, right? But why don't we, why don't we practice hospitality anymore? Why don't we practice hospitality anymore? I bet if I were to ask you this question this morning, you would give me some combination of these answers, and I would probably give you some combination of these answers as well, so this isn't just you to me. So these are the answers that we would probably give, right? First is, I don't like for people to be in my home, right? I want this to be a place to relax and and just kind of let everything, just let my hair down, right? I love to let my hair down, but anyways, we... We, uh, we want it to be a place that we can get away from the, the world, get away from work and just relax. And bringing somebody we don't really know into that removes it from being a place of relaxation, right? Is that the first thing? The second thing is, is that I, I, you know, honestly, it's too much work. It's too, it's too much work. I, I don't want to have to stress about, about getting home and making sure that the house is just right, that everything is put away, that everything is clean. Probably, I don't want to have to work at making sure that the meal is just so, that everything is just right. And I, and I just don't, like, oh, it's just too much work. I stress about it. How many of you are there? Or maybe it is I, I don't cook. Pretty good one. I don't cook. Why in the world would I have anybody to my house to eat if I don't cook? A lot of us might say that I don't have enough time for this. I mean, I have a full-time job and I'm in school or I have two or three jobs or I have kids who have 7,000 things that they all need to go to every week. I, when, when would I actually do this in my schedule? I don't really have the time. See, all of these are great excuses, but they are just that, excuses. So I'm not asking that you add one more thing to your schedule, but just do something that you already do. I mean, you're already eating. 
every day, right? If you're not, maybe you should. I'm not asking you to add one more thing to your schedule. I'm just asking you that you do what you're already doing and bring people along with you, right? I'm going to pick on you, Kent. How many meals do you eat a day? At least three. So just based off of Kent, at least three, I would say we probably all average three meals a day, right? Now, this is going to be great math, mind-blowing. That's 21 meals a week, right? And of those 21 meals a week, I would say that for the most part, you have a hand in preparing or purchasing or bringing together that meal for you to eat, correct? So all I'm asking, I'm not asking that you do anything outlandish that is something way outside of what you're already, I'm asking you to do what you're already doing, just intentionally bring somebody along with you. We've been talking about this all year, not eating, but we've been talking about this all year of pursue God and bring people along with you. This isn't doing something different than you're already doing. This is just intentionally thinking about other people who need to come along with you, that need to know God themselves, that need to be brought into this community, that need to be brought into your life, that need to be brought into Jesus. Bring them along with you while you're doing what you're already doing doing. See, the the point is not what you eat. It is that you are sitting across from somebody open and sharing with them and inviting them into your life. And because what you eat isn't really the thing that matters, you don't have to stress over what you eat. If you don't cook, that's fine. Order something and pick it up on the way home. Have it delivered. Or, here's a crazy thought, meet them at a restaurant. Let somebody else prepare. If you need to save money, go to Paula's and get a donut. There you go. Best amen I've gotten so far. That's awesome. See, the point is not what you eat. The point is that you are sitting with somebody and you are, you, are, you are speaking into their lives. You are investing in their life and you are inviting them into your life as well. That you are intentionally trying to get to know them. That you are concerned with them. That you have, you have this interest in their life and you are willing to share your life with them. That is what makes this so effective. It's not the food. It is the relationship. It is the, the connection. What matters, what, what makes a difference, what makes this so impactful is the fact that you care enough to welcome them into your home. That you care enough to invite them into your space, that you care enough to invite them into your relationship or a relationship with you, that you, you care enough to invite them into your life. That's really what matters. That's what makes a difference is that we are inviting people into our lives. 
And if you are just so uncomfortable with this at first, and maybe you're just a really, really awkward person and you are very bad at conversation, that's okay. Maybe bring somebody else with you who is a good conversationalist, right? Maybe bring somebody along with you who, who can carry some of that conversation, who can ease some of the awkwardness in that moment. Or maybe... Maybe to make it really easy, what if, what if our grace groups got together once a month, once a quarter, ever, however often we had dinner parties together where we would invite all of our lost friends together that maybe they would have conversation with somebody else and maybe they would begin a relationship with that other person and maybe that would be an introduction into the group or maybe that would be an introduction into the church or maybe that would be an introduction into the life with Christ. See, it's, it's not this, this difficult thing that we think it is. It is just simply inviting people in. Hospitality is a doorway into relationship. I've seen it over and over. I've seen it modeled for us really, really well over and over. Author Henry Nowen said, when we invite friends for a meal, we do much more than offer them food for their bodies. We offer them friendship, fellowship, good conversation, intimacy, and closeness. When we say, help yourself, take some more, don't be shy, have another glass, we offer our guests not only our food and drink, but also ourselves. So the the goal is to invite people into our lives, not just to the table, but into our lives. And inviting people into our lives and having these moments where we are with them and we are investing in them, what we are doing is we are building relational capital for the one day that we get to speak to them the gospel. I was thinking about this the other day, uh, my, my best friend who is one of the ones that I'm praying for in this series, I'm thinking about, I've been thinking about this um, this week, is that he has given up on all Christianity, he's given up on the church, he's given up on every believer, really, that I know but me. And I, I've thought about that, that it has nothing to do with, with the fact that I have these brilliant ideas that he just can't refute. It is simply that we have a relationship. We have a relationship. And so I have the, the, the relational capital that I can speak into his life when the moment arises. That is the goal of this, is, is to build that relational capital for that moment when, in a few weeks we're going we're gonna to see this, that, that moment when we can share our faith with them. We build that through relationship. And the entryway into relationship is simply, hey, why don't you come join me for a meal? Why don't don't we go meet for a cup of coffee? See, far too often we overcomplicate evangelism. 
We make it this, this complex thing and this daunting task that we have to go knock on someone's door and, and bring out this very interesting conversation that they don't want to have. That's, that's, not, that, that, that's too complicated sometimes of what evangelism is. Evangelism can be as simple as just, hey, why don't you come get a cup of coffee with me? Or, hey, why don't you meet me at this restaurant and we're going to have a meal? Or, why don't you come over to our house and we'll just hang out for a little bit? See, Jesus' strategy was very simple. The strategy of the early church was, was very simple. It just began around a table. And it could begin around a table for us. Paul said that when, when they were to the, the church at, at Thessalonica, they, he, he, he writes to them, he said, we were not only willing to share with you the gospel of God, but our very lives. That, hey, you know what? This, it's not just about speaking the truth. It is about sharing with you our lives. And, and we begin that by inviting people into our space, into our homes, into our lives. Invite people in. That's what Jesus did. He invited people into his life often beginning at a table. See, on the, the night that Jesus was betrayed, while sitting at a meal, he introduced a, another meal. And I said, I, I said earlier that one of the prevalent ways the Bible refers to experiencing God is through food. And this meal was a moment to reflect on what Christ has done and actively experience him. He, he gave them bread and said, this bread is my body that was broken for you. And then he gave them wine and he said, this wine is, is my blood that was shed for you. And this, this meal that he instituted, this meal that we are going to partake of in just a moment is, is a meal that is a picture of the gospel, that the body of Jesus was broken, that the blood of Jesus was, was poured out. For you. His body was broken, and upon his body, he took the, the punishment for your sins, and his blood was, was shed for the, the, the payment for your life. And the gospel is simply, he did that for you. He did that for you but you must partake of this. You must join in with him. You must eat him, as Jesus said in John 6. If you do not eat me, you have no place with me. What he means is that if you do not partake of it on your own, then it does nothing for you. Not that we get saved every time we take communion. Rather, communion is a moment for us to remember when we, we did come into the family and we, we did partake of it, that, that moment when we said, God, I need you. So maybe there are some of us here this morning who would say, you know what, I don't know that I have actively participated in Christ. I don't know that I have actually 
participated in what he's done. I, I know the, the, the truth that, that Jesus died for sin. But this morning it's becoming a little more real that it was for my sin. And I, I know that Jesus' blood was shed to purchase people. But this morning it's becoming more real that it was to purchase me. I'm not real sure what to do with this. I'm not, I'm not taking ownership of this. I'm not, taking, I'm not, not put myself in this. You can this morning. The beautiful thing is all you can do is say, God, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. And he's done the rest. That is what this meal signifies, is that he has done everything, and all we can do is to partake of it ourselves by grace through faith. If that's you this morning and you would say, you know what, I... I don't know that I have taken my place in this. Would you this morning? Would you just reach out and grab that forgiveness that Jesus has already paid for for you? If you would say, that I, I'm not real sure about this. I'm not real sure about all of this. I'm kind of, uh, I'm still kind of trying to figure this out. I, I'm interested in what you're saying, but I, I'm not real sure. If, you, if that's you, great. We're glad you're here. We want you to keep coming along with us, and hopefully, hopefully it begins to make more and more sense to you, and you, you get a revelation from God, and it's this light bulb moment. But if you want to have a conversation about it, I would love to have that conversation with you. I would love to explain what this means. So would any one of our elders. You can find them with the red lanyard after the service. We'll be around. We would love to have that conversation with you. If you would say, you know what, I, 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 think, I've, I think I've made that step where I, I've accepted this and I've, I've taken my part and I've taken ownership of, of what Jesus has done for me, but I, I want to talk more about that. If that's you after the service, please come see me or one of the elders. We would love to talk with you. In fact, you are the whole reason we're here because this is not the end. This is simply the beginning. And from here, we move forward with Christ. And we want to help you see what that looks like. But for all of us who are in here this morning, as our elders and trustees come, as, as we, we come to prepare for this, this meal, all of us who are in here, this is what I ask. If you are in Christ, if you have taken that upon yourself, you have received what Christ has done for you, then we, we, we say, yes, join us with this meal. But if you have not, if you have not accepted what Jesus has done for you, if you've not participated in what he has done, then we ask that you let this pass this time. 
And for all of us, as we, we pass these elements out, my, my ask for you, my request of you, every one of us, is that we take a moment to prepare our hearts. Because Paul says in Corinthians that if we take and eat in an unworthy manner, we, we eat and we drink condemnation upon ourselves. So let's look into ourselves and prepare ourselves for this moment to celebrate what Jesus has done and to meet with him right now.